Welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Today, we have the good fortune to have guests from Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. Tim Whitehouse and Kevin Bell, welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Great to be here. As always, there are caveats associated with this show, specifically that any of the opinions that are offered are not the opinions of Howard County Community College, its staff, faculty, or employees, and that any legal discussions on this show are not intended to provide legal advice. It is imperative, if you need legal help, that you contact a lawyer and provide them the details of your particular situation so they can give you appropriate legal advice. With that said, um, Tim, why don't you tell us about the origins of your organization and what it is that you do? Sure. Here was founded in 1992. Our origins are in the public lands out west in the Forest Service. And what happened was a gentleman named Jeff DeBonis was in the Peace Corps in El Salvador in the 1970s. And he was down there teaching them about the dangers of clear-cut logging and how bad that was for ecosystems and water systems. And when he came back to the United States, he accepted a job with the Forest Service and his job was to sign off on timber sales. And what he found was the exact same things happening in the United States that were happening in El Salvador. So we often send people abroad to work with other countries on how to improve their environmental practices, and we may not be adhering to those practices here in this country. So Jeff became very concerned. He saw massive clear-cutting in Montana and Oregon, and he wrote some memos that ended up in the press. And for those that were alive in the 1970s may remember there were a huge amount of publicity in the New York Times and all the leading TV and radio stations about the dangers of clear cutting. And Jeff was one of the instigators of this work in terms of focusing on the dangers of clear cutting. And so he decided he needed to step out and form an organization that could work with public employees who wanted to anonymously convey information to the public about the dangers of different environmental issues. So he started with public lands and forest service, and eventually it expanded into all natural resources and environmental agencies, including public health. So Pierre was born out of his work. He was the first executive director and it was founded in 1992. So it works across any environmental issue at the state, local, tribal, or federal level. And we're a little bit different than other organizations in that we work with public employees who are either currently in government or recently retired. So you work with whistleblowers? Yes. So we work with whistleblowing is part of our work. So our attorney- And what is a whistleblower? I mean, I think everybody has some inkling, but, but what is kind of your definitional basis for that? So a whistleblower for us at the federal level, there are state laws also, is an employee who makes a disclosure, which the employee reasonably believes to be true, and they're exposing or reporting a violation of laws or rules or regulations or gross mismanagement of funds, abuse of authority. And so they're reporting things and the whistleblower laws give them protection so they cannot be retaliated against for reporting this wrongdoing. Just to add to that, so the source of the statute is 5 U.S. Code 2302, which is the Whistleblower Protection Act, later amended by the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act. And 
You know, one thing that Tim didn't mention that I think a lot of people are confused about in the context of who or what is a whistleblower is that this disclosure doesn't have to be to the New York Times. It doesn't have to be to a member of Congress. It certainly can be. But a lot of people who find themselves needing the protections of the Whistleblower Protection Act are not persons who have intentionally gone outside of their chain of command. So uh, you mentioned Alexander Vindeman earlier. One of the things right. that is unique about his case is that there is a certain provision in the law that where the material you're dealing with is somehow national security classified or otherwise sensitive, it needs to go through a certain specific channels. But many people who find themselves in a situation where they need the protections of the Whistleblower Protection Act are people who simply reported something internally to their boss, to their second line supervisor, to another person in the break room. They said, oh, hey, I think it's weird that the analysis in this environmental documentation that we recently did didn't include some analysis of the impact to water tables when it seems like it should have, or there are some impacts to an endangered species that might happen as a result of some project going forward that you know they would raise an obstacle or an objection or even make a discussion internally. And as a result, they're branded by somebody in their management chain as problematic or an obstacle to achieving whatever the objectives of that you know, manager or supervisor are for whatever project they're working on. And I would say that's probably the most so common these, way people come to us. Do these protections exist for people who have private employment as opposed to government? In a manner of speaking, the Whistleblower Protection Act specifically does not, but there are a number of environmental statutes. Among them, the Clean Air Act is one of the biggest that if you disclose information which evidences a violation of one of these statutes, or if you testify in support of a case which is brought against either your employer or some other party uh, that demonstrates that there is a violation of one of the environmental statutes, and there's a list of about 20 or 25 that apply to private employers, then you are protected from retaliation by your employer against you. The scope on those varies widely, and you know, write an essay about it. I would presume that there are private employers that generate large amounts of money with not being entirely forthcoming about the effect some of their activities have on the environment and that the stakes are pretty high in that. Yeah, I would say there are a great number of employers that do quite a bit of harm to the environment that make a lot of money doing so. So one of the examples that's recently been in the news associated with COVID-19 is Dr. Rick Bright, who was intimately involved in vaccine development, I believe over at NIH. And I gather he falls into the category of a whistleblower as well. Yes, correct. He made whistleblower disclosures and the Dr. Bright situation really shows how our whistleblower protections have been degraded under this administration. So normally the idea with whistleblowing is you wanna provide support and you want people within government to feel comfortable reporting wrongdoing and then have that wrongdoing looked into, examined, and then have some sort of report or judgment or finding made by the investigatory body. Here, unfortunately, as is often the case with whistleblowers recently, the whistleblower, Dr. Bright, was completely vilified and lost in sort of the press around that case was the basis of his allegations. And so that's of great concern to us is the degradation of whistleblower protections and particularly the lack of oversight by Congress over the whistleblower protection laws. 
So is there something specifically that could be done other than having a different attitude to make this something that's more protective? Well, I'll weigh in and then I'll let Kevin weigh in who does a lot of our actual whistleblower litigation. But the first thing you need is an environment that is accepting of dissent. So any society needs to allow dissent because it is dissent that allows our government to improve. So the original whistleblower protection laws were back in the Continental Congress of the United States when members of the Navy were reporting that their supervisors who were involved also in the slave trade were disobeying orders from General Washington to profit their own businesses. And they reported things to the Continental Congress were vilified for years and finally laws came out of that to protect them and they were reimbursed for their charges. So this country has a long conflicted history of whistleblowers, but the origins are in the Continental Congress and the need to provide an avenue for dissent. So what are the modern origins? Kevin? Oh, gosh, I don't know, the Pentagon Papers? Okay, um, that's a good one, that's a good one. Yeah, there are innumerable examples of modern whistleblowers. You know, I think that the most famous ones end up being those that, you know, like the Pentagon Papers, are matters of national security that otherwise the public has virtually no information about, only what's shared. But whistleblowers have been applicable in the environmental context in a number of very significant ways recently. You know, one recently that I suppose would be relevant would be the toxicity of the dust from the Twin Towers falling on 9-11 and the threats that the public employees and the people of New York were exposed to as a result of that, which had been woefully under-revealed by the EPA, despite having all the information necessary to do so. Thank so goodness for John Stewart. Well, that was a case where we represented the whistleblower, uh, Kate Jenkins, who was in the Environmental Protection Agency. And you may remember after the terrible events of 9-11, there was a rush to return to normalcy and uh, reporting that these chemicals in the air and the dust in the air didn't pose health risks. And an EPA scientist raised the alarm and as a result suffered significant retaliation. She was fired. We represented her for a number of years. The case was resolved in her favor. And, you know, that's a classic example of a modern day whistleblower who spoke out against what the political environment wanted her to say and suffered as a result. It's funny how people seem to want to resume normalcy sometimes when normalcy really isn't there like the present. Right. So what are you guys up to presently? Well, I'll, I'll say most of our work is confidential in the sense that okay. our number one goal when someone approaches us is to maintain their confidence in most instances. So we advise people to come to us to actually try and avoid the whistleblower laws and to work with us behind the scenes to resolve their problem and their issue. And whistleblower protections do provide confidentiality. So I'll just say that we normally work and try and maintain confidentiality because once you step into the public sphere, you're attacked. And so the vast majority of our work is resolved behind the scenes with no public disclosures. I'll offer, you know, Kevin can talk about some of his FOIA litigation, which is very interesting and related to whistleblowing. And let's just tell the, tell the audience what FOIA is and what its purpose is. Yeah. So in addition to whistleblowing, what we do is Freedom of Information Act lit litigation. 
So oftentimes people will come to us in the government with a concern and there are documents, often these involve documents that are being withheld by the government that should be in the public domain. And so working with these public employees, we will send a Freedom of Information Act request trying to get those documents into the public domain. And it often ends up in litigation. And we're very litigious in that aspect. We're one of the most litigious groups in the country after the American Civil Liberties Union and Freedom Works as a small organization, trying to get this information in the public domain. And that is a great way to sort of solve the dilemma that a lot of employees have. They're working in an environment where they're told not to release things that should be released, or there may be information there that people don't know about. So we do a lot of that litigation. And Kevin here is one of the leading FOIA attorneys in the country and has a number of experiences that are currently going on that are in the public domain. I think he could share information on. Sure, that'd be great, Kevin. What, what say you? Well, first I say Tim's gonna make me blush. I don't know if I would call myself leading in the country, but you know, I do work with our senior attorneys who I practice under at the moment. And I manage a FOIA docket that is between, I believe at its lowest ebb was about 10 cases and has been as high as 20. FOIA litigation is unique from a lot of other matters because it, you know, in, in ordinary litigation, you've got discovery sort of at the core of the process. You want to find out what all the facts are in order to build a record upon which a judge can make a legal decision. In FOIA, the party that controls all of the information is the government, and the point of the litigation is essentially what in some other instances you might look at as just being a discovery dispute. It is resolved almost entirely on summary judgment, and the government, as the party with sole control over access to the information, is also provided a presumption of legitimacy and good faith in all of their affidavits about that information and the reasons for withholding it. They're seven or eight statutory exceptions for why it is that the government can't withhold information. Um, they tend to get overused, in my opinion, at least. Uh, and there are a lot of people in Congress who feel similarly, despite a lot of attempts. We unfortunately haven't made a lot of ground yet on getting agencies to proactively disclose things, but I will always hold out hope. But yeah, so when government employees tell us that information exists and that we should be able to access it in compliance with FOIA, and then the government does not release that information when we request it, then that's the point where we're forced to go into litigation, either then or where the government spends entirely too much time not responding to FOIA requests. By statute, they have 20 working days, which usually works out to about a month to respond to each FOIA request that we submit. You know, we don't put in litigation on the, the 21st day after that. You know, typically we wait a little while longer, give the government a chance to respond. But in some agencies, Bureau of Land Management particularly, you know, they're just, it's, it's a glacial speed. Like you're not even getting acknowledgements of requests in some instances. I could, I'm sure they regard you as irritating, however, for asking for things. Oh, absolutely. Is this done predominantly in the federal courts or the state courts or both? So each state has its own public record statute. So in New York, for instance, they have the Freedom of Information Law. Some states call it the state FOIA, but the Freedom of Information Act itself, Title V U.S. Code Section 552, is applicable only to the federal government and its agencies thereof, but not the president. So do you find that you periodically need to get information from local and state governments? We do. And we keep an eye on what all 50 state government public records laws are. And we've had occasion to use a great number of them. I haven't done state public records litigation in a little while now. I've had to threaten state public records litigation, but I haven't actually had to follow through on it yet. 
Is any state regarded as particularly enlightened on this topic? Oh, gosh. We have a rating system that's going to come out in a few months. So the rating system looks at the different states and rates them. So in a few months, we may have an answer. But I would say there's the law and then people, how, how they apply the law. And sometimes those are two different things. So we look at the laws. So we don't have a clear answer to that today, but we hopefully will soon. I mean, I would presume that there's probably Information Act litigation going on in all 50 states presently for one reason or another. Absolutely. I think that's probably the case. So what are the criteria you would use to hypothetically evaluate the states individually? Well, we look at a variety of issues. So we're actually just in the process of doing that and reviewing our evaluation tools. But certainly one impediment we find, which goes to how things are practiced, is how much they charge people that send in these requests. So not-for-profit organizations, a huge obstacle can be high fees for charging for copying things. So uh, like on a per page basis? Or? Yeah. So yeah. in the federal government, we have exemptions because we are not for profit and we meet the requirements that we're going to put this in the public domain. So a lot of states don't have that and they end up charging exorbitant fees where they essentially discourage the release of information because no one can afford it. Another thing we're finding in states like New York where there's not a clear enforcement mechanism is we can send a public information act request in for something very simple that would literally take someone five minutes to pull up a report and send it on a test. And a year later, we still are not getting a response because of unknown delays. Now we're in the COVID crisis, so we don't want to push it too much, but we do know, you know, these documents are there and they would literally take someone two minutes to email. So there, there are a very variety of complex factors regarding fees, enforcement, deadlines that can allow states to be non-responsive to Information Act requests. Ultimately, it's about getting the records. Um, so can, everything else... can you use contempt proceedings if a state refuses? Can you use civil or, or criminal contempt proceedings to compel them or a mandamus? Or is there some mechanism if you have a recalcitrant state that won't give you information that you know exists? Typically, it's a cause of action under that state-specific statute. So, you know, the, the Federal Freedom of Information Act empowers federal courts specifically to enter orders uh, requiring the release of whatever records or, you know, other relief as may be appropriate. But each state would vary a little bit as to how much access you have to the courts and the setting in which you have to bring those actions. So is your predominant work in the federal courts here? Personally, yes. Okay. How do you find the overall level of cooperation in the present day? The individual FOIA officers themselves, in my experience, have been exceptionally dedicated professionals. They think of FOIA requesters like ourselves or the public as, you know, it's almost like a customer service orientation. They have records uh, and they want to produce them. It is in their interests personally and professionally and ethically, and in some cases even they feel morally, 
to produce as many of those records to requesters as possible because they think that people have a right to know that information. And Access Professionals, they have an annual event called for the American Society of Access Professionals, but FOIA officers the world over tend to be really good people. For a lot of people, it's not their first career. It's something that they end up coming into. So there's a lot of retired military people and people who have been civil servants in other capacities. So they have a deep understanding of the federal government and they understand the necessity of having open public records. And they almost always do a very good job of that. The thing that makes it a problem is twofold. The first is understaffing to a woeful degree. Most of these FOIA offices are working with less than a skeleton staff. They're able to respond to requests in you know, months, not the days that are required by the statute. And when they do, it's often, it's reliant on other parts of the agency to make those records available to the FOIA office to then provide to the requester. So a lot of it is self-reported and they really lack the resources to even maintain a strong culture internally of making those records available to the public upon a request in a prompt fashion, at least. The second is active political interference by members of agency management who would rather not have records that would either embarrass them individually, their political leadership within the party, or the agency as a whole. And as a result, there have been practices within a lot of agencies, particularly the Department of Interior and the Environmental Protection Agency, where there are records that by statute should be released. They are not subject to any particular exemption, but they are either withheld entirely, like they don't even tell us that they exist, or they are redacted to the point of just illegibility by a politically interested legal staff that will go over the decisions of FOIA officers and second guess the decisions made by professionals with a political interest, not a legal one in mind. I'm shocked to hear that politics are involved. Ah, I know, God. So let's turn our attention to actual practical ramifications of what you guys and your organization have done. I would presume you have been involved in all manner of things, some of which have resulted in highly positive things. Could you talk a little bit about that, please? Sure. I'll talk about an emerging issue here in Maryland that we've been involved in nationally. And Kevin, I'm sure, has other things, too. There are many, many things. But uh, one thing we've been involved in is a class of chemicals called PFAS, which are perfluorinated chemicals. These have been brought into the public conscious by the recent movie Dark Waters, which is a movie about an attorney, Robert Bellot, who represented some people in West Virginia that were getting very sick working in or near a DuPont plant that produced these chemicals. And what came to fold is a many decades long struggle against the Environmental Protection Agency and DuPont to find out why these people were getting sick. And, and so PFOS chemicals, there are a class of them. There are about 8,000 of them. They're wonderful chemicals in the sense that they're resistant to oil, water, and heat, but they're man-made and they have a carbon and fluorine bond that mean they don't break down. So what that means is they're called the forever chemicals. So if they enter into your bloodstream, they stay there. They bioaccumulate. If they try and incinerate them, they go up the stack. So these chemicals that have these wonderful qualities for nonstick pans, jackets, firefighting foam are turning into a significant human health and environmental hazard. So when they started looking to see and finding out about these PFAS chemicals, they thought, well, we'll test different populations to see who has them in their 
bloodstream, thinking it would be sort of around the DuPont plant in West Virginia. Well, it turns out they are everywhere in the country, everywhere in the world, in everyone's bloodstream. And EPA is approving more and more of these chemicals. And we have been working to test where these chemicals are ending up. And we're finding them in artificial turf that children play on. We're finding them in fertilizers, biosolids that you're putting into your gardens. We're finding them everywhere. And we're also finding them in our water systems, including in Maryland, in oysters in Maryland, in fish in Maryland. And so this is part of a national push to get the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, to do its job and to set standards to regulate these chemicals, which are toxic, which interfere with the hormonal systems and which affect the immune system and which increase the risk of cancer. So that's one example. Wow. Yep. Sounds important. It's very important. And, you know, it's one of the many emerging issues. We have wonderful technologies and sometimes our system of overseeing the effects of those of progress don't keep up. And sometimes our governments get captured by the economic interests, which I think is in this case, what happened is they listen to the industry more than they listen to their own scientists. So I know scientists at the National Institute of Health have been sounding the alarm bells for many years, and the industry had information back in the 1950s and 60s about the dangers of these chemicals, which have never made it into the public domain until the last 10 or 20 years. But EPA is still approving more and more of these chemicals. Sounds as though that's a political process too. It can be, yes. Very much so. A little reminiscent of Aaron Brockovich and uh, A Civil Action, which were both popular movies and, and books that, that kind of touched on underlying chemicals that were highly dangerous for people. Exactly. And sometimes it seems we haven't learned the lessons of Aaron Brockovich. And uh, Dark Waters is sort of a contemporary version of that story, the process that Aaron Brockovich went through. And it's a wonderful film. I guess Julia Roberts will not be able to play you. Well, I I don't get to be played in this one, but in that film, they had some uh, wonderful actors. It was uh, starring Mark Ruffalo and others. Oh, Mark Ruffalo is a great actor. Right. Who's going to play you, Kevin? Who, me? Oh. Yeah. I mean, I I honestly had my sights set on Julia Roberts, but if you think it's not going to work out. You're going to have to shave then. That's okay. Artistic license. Well, I know we're getting ready to wind up this segment, and I just wanted to thank you both, not only for appearing today and making sense of the need for whistleblowers and an explanation of what FOIA is, because I do think most of the public regards it as impenetrable, but also for the work that you're doing to encourage long-term evaluation of health risks in our society. It's great to have jobs and to have a dynamic economy. You just don't want to do it at the risk of public health. Well, thank you, Bob. It was great to be here. I hope to have a recurrent segment where you guys check in and kind of tell me what's going on in the whistleblower world and what triumphs we have in the coming years in uh, taking care of public health and taking care of the environment. We'd love to do that. There's a lot of work to be done. Happy to come back. Thanks very much. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell and be safe. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio. 